for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Welcome to the podcast, In and Through exists to equip the church to be hearers and doers of the word. My name is Tim, and I am the senior pastor at Memorial Baptist Church in Stratford, Ontario. And my name is Marshall, and I'm the associate pastor. Marshall, you're not feeling it over there. I'm just tired, man. I'm just zonked. Yeah. I'm just gunned. Yeah, you look it. I'm just wiped. I don't know what other, <laughs> what other lingo I can use to describe my... See, I'll be fine. I'll survive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just live. I live in this world now. This is this is my life. It is. Hey, I listen. One of the one of the principal things you can learn in counseling, and not even not even just pastoral counseling, professional counseling, whatever. Just friends talking to friends. So this is for everyone. It doesn't help anyone to be like, oh yeah, I know, right? right. You don't know. Sure. Every person's individual capacities are different for receiving things. Situations are so given, right? Mm -hmm. You're talking to someone whose mom passed. Just because your mom passed doesn't mean that you get it, right? Right, right. There's differences. I can say at one point I was a full-time pastor Uh with three kids under the age of four while I was a full-time MDiv student. Yeah. So you get it. <laughs> I was exhausted. And I could imagine in a very similar vein, you are exhausted for similar reasons. I am. But I'm excited to be here and doing this anyways. Yeah, it's kind of it's kind of just picking up off of the end of yesterday. Well, for <laughs> us, of. it was yesterday for last week's episode. Sure, yeah. Where we just ran out of time. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> yeah. Pretty much. But I got more, th- I got more things. I got more things because people want their things. So I got the things. Let's hear the things. Things. 1948, the Frisbee is invented. Whoa. 1948. 1948. Yeah. It took took until 1948 for people to start flinging plastic plates across the yard. I know. The the atomic bomb, already done. All right. Uh, 1949, NATO is established uh, with its original 12 members. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. 1950 to 53, the Korean War happens, which is kind of a proxy war, kind of not. It, it's it's hard to kind of break that down, but you had, you know, the American West backing the South and the communist Soviets mm-hmm. and the Chinese backing the North. Uh, so it divided the world, even though it just took place in this, you know, relatively small place. Um, Nineteen fifty-one, power steering is invented. So before that, you had to have real strong forearms to drive around. I I'm old enough to have owned a vehicle without power steering. Oh yeah, yeah. I only ever it's only ever been like when the power steering goes on a vehicle, and I'm just like, oh, this is what my ancestors did. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not old enough to be your ancestor. Yeah, but my first truck didn't have power steering. Okay. Or an automatic transmission. Okay. There you it go. wasn't in the column. I'm not that old. It was on the floor. <laughs> okay, nice. Did you even know that at one point the transmission was on the column? No, but that what? Well, that's what it is for. Isn't that? Aren't transport trucks like that? No. Oh, then I don't know. I don't know anything about anything. Yeah. Don't. Yeah. yeah don't ask me. I never learned how to drive stick. Yeah. We ne- we never owned we never owned one when I was learning to drive. I drove my buddy's Jetta a couple times around town and like probably almost. Wrecked his clutch, so mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> um, okay, 1954, Ray Kroc starts the McDonald's restaurant franchise. How's that doing? 
We're all loving it and clogging our arteries. Okay. 1955, the Montgomery bus boycott. Rosa Parks doesn't give up receipt. Starts a, starts a whole thing. Uh, 1962, the Cuban Missile Crisis. Probably like the closest we came to World War III. Mm-hmm. Like pretty darn close. Yeah. Um, the following year, 1963, John F. Kennedy is assassinated. A few years after that, Martin Luther King Jr., also assassinated. 1969, two very important things happen. Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin land on the moon. You know, the U.S. is planning to go back. I heard that. Yeah, so is China. Oh, new space race? It is. Oh, fun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's a three-year plan. Oh, fun. Okay. So, yeah, so man lands on the moon, apparently allegedly. I have family members who are like, I don't know, man. I just don't know. <laughs> She's like, I don't really care. Uh, yeah. But the other important thing that happened in 1969 was uh, the debut of Sesame Street. Oh, sweet. Yeah. 1969. That's like that's going back. Woodstock? My, my dad was four. Yeah, Woodstock. This is the same year as Woodstock, yeah. My dad would have been four. So all in one year, you get Woodstock, Sesame Street, and the moon. And the moon. That's a good year. It's a good year. Yeah. Beatles were like in their prime, I think. Is that right? I don't know. I don't know. Sometimes I feel like I was born a few decades too late, but yeah. Well, I yesterday I happened to be downtown and I went into Fanfare Books. Okay. Yeah. Just That's looking a cool, around. Cool little store. Yeah. If you're not from Stratford, the coolest thing about this town, it's a pretty cool town. It is. Right? So 33 to 35,000. Yeah. Uh, but with. A downtown that's very much alive, yeah, locally owned, yeah, and you can you can shop your downtown, yep, right. It's yeah. really cool. Uh, and so I was at one of what is like three bookstores that we have on that downtown strip that right. are locally owned and alive and running. Right. I was at Fanfare, yep. just happened to walk in, looked. They have John Steinbeck, a couple of them. Wow. Just because I said people need so, <laughs> go there and you. I think they had of mice and men. Okay, which yeah. is probably his most famous. Sure, but if you haven't read it, it's mm. it's incredible. Uh, there's a reason it's so famous, right? So, yeah, hashtag buy local. There you go. Go well, pick it up. I love it. I love it. Yeah. An- another thing that I wanted to to do, um, as as far as just the things you must read, mm. it, and it's one of those again, maybe it's like of mice and men, but maybe more so. It's just so common to talk about it that you just assume that people have read it, even if they haven't. If you've not read The Diary of Anne Frank... I've not. And you want a glimpse into how people were living during this world time in World War II with the uh, the gathering of the Jews by the Nazis. Man, The Diary of Anne Frank, there's a reason it's required reading, uh, at least in, in U.S. schools. Right. It's required reading... Uh, and and also, as we're going to start talking about theology and, and Christian in, influence uh, at the end of the war and post-war, Corey Tinboom, right, yeah, is a great read no matter what she's writing on. Yep, uh, the Hiding Place, yeah, yeah, is incredible. Yeah, I've read part of that. But yeah, yeah, no, um, 
Those are good. Those are good recos. We're coming to the end of the history podcast, and we so are. for all of the people that we've given a taste of history, we got to give them something. Yeah, that's true. To carry something them to into the new year. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, in these in these episodes, I mean, especially because we're getting so close to current events, mm-hmm. there are so many tracks that we could go down in these episodes. Yeah. But we have to just kind of grab a couple and go with them. Yeah, I, I think I was just thinking of all of the episodes we've done, timeline wise, yeah, this has the potential to be most sloppy. Oh, for sure. Yeah. We we could make it all the way up into the nineteen seventies as we just did with our history. Essentially, yeah. We might not make it past the fifties. <laughs> we'll see we'll see how it goes. Cause today we're gonna be talking about Cold War Christianity or Christianity during the era of the Cold War. Yeah. And again, not going to go into great detail about the larger world events, just kind of seeing them as a backdrop for what's happening within the church. Although I don't know if we were that successful with that last time. We no. kind of got into the war and the social side of the war, but it... Well, a little bit. It, it was good. I liked it. Yeah. we Well, and as it related to their views on Christianity, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, so yeah, you've got, I mean, you've got so much going on in this time period. You've got the Cold War itself. Civil rights movement is like... Being becoming a thing, obviously in the fifties and sixties, you have the the change in the demographics, like a rise of the middle class. Like that's a thing now. You're mm-hmm. not either rich or poor. You can be like kind of rich, and right. then more and more people are kind of rich, mm-hmm. um, and that just kind of explodes onto the scene. Um, you have like globalization, so just different parts of the world are becoming increasingly connected through trade and different things. Mm-hmm. Not quite yet to the degree it is today but that's happening right um at this period of history so the things are really changing yeah and the church is changing and again germany yeah of course yeah yeah so to talk about this one we it technically it starts the story of this one starts before world war ii but it kind of goes through the war era and then into um the time after Mm -hmm. that obviously but it's a new theological framework, I guess we could say. Um, And it's something that's known as neo-orthodoxy. Right. So one of the most influential um, theologians when it comes to neo-orthodoxy was Karl Barth, who for a time lived in Nazi Germany, but was able to escape before things got too heated um, and returned to his native Switzerland. Um, He was a guy who was... He was raised in the liberal theological tradition, mm-hmm. right? So he, like he studied, he traveled to Berlin as a young, as a young guy, cause he wanted to study under Adolf von Harnack, who was one of the guys you mentioned a few weeks back. Like he went out of his way to get that education. That's what he wanted. And, you know, he studied under all of these professors and at all these institutions that were known for that. So he was, Karl Barth was brought up in that born and bred into it. Um, But then as time goes on, he saw, and at this point he's a young pastor, he sees these professors, these kind of heroes for Mm him, kind of just drift further and further and further. Right. Like the liberal theology, for him, liberal theology was a fun game to play for a bit, but at at some point it's like, okay, there's there's nothing here anymore. Like it's just gone. Mm -hmm. And so he starts kind of responding to that, and um, he becomes... He becomes skeptical of liberal theology, which is kind of fun because, like, liberal theology is all about skepticism, but he kind of flips it um, and writes a famous commentary on the Book of Romans. And 
that kind of dropped onto the theological scene like a bomb uh, mm-hmm. when he did write it because in a, in a place, in a part of the world and within a particular group where liberal theology reigned supreme, he started pushing back, uh, pushing back pretty hard. Yeah. So, so the thing about the thing about Bart as the premier the premier example, mm-hmm. but neo orthodox theology as a whole, it's they they're looking at the two groups, the fundamentalists and the liberals, uh-huh. right? And these groups that have swung apart and and dragged people into their far swings mm. and they've they've made a decision to say this one group is academically credible mm. that being the liberals right liberalism secularism have always and still continue to hide behind the mask of being the most academic right yeah right although there are a number of academic concessions that have to be held in order to stay there <laughs> and to make statements right. of origin and purpose and things like that. Right. Which is a great segue into a sales pitch for next year's podcast. Okay, yeah. So we're going to wrap up church history, and then January 1, we're going to start podcasting on apologetics. Yeah. So we will unmask some of this this disguise of academics mm. being a secular or liberal right, venture. Right. Uh, and, and that fundamentalism, classical fundamentalism, mm-hmm. is for those who don't think, for the superstitious and the uneducated. Right. Right? That was, that was the notion put forth by the liberals that was purchased by the neo-Orthodox movement. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, they look at the fundamentals and they say, they're happier <laughs> right? Like if it only makes sense that truth would bring you to joy. Right. That there would be a completeness right. in understanding truth and experiencing life in truth. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And although although I'm going to argue these people are more academic, these people seem to have seem to get it. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Like They've, however, they got there. They got, they got there, and they've arrived at something. Yeah. And I want that thing. Yeah. And so, they're going to try to fuse together the liberal and the fundamentalist by finding a common ground and to walk. Right. Right. A new way to practice orthodoxy. Right. Right? So <laughs> neo-orthodoxy yeah. just means the new orthodoxy. Right. What they really mean by that is liberal fundamentalism. Right. It's it's the third way in their minds anyway. Right. The, the third right. this is the third way. What if you what if you took these two things <sighs> and squished them together? Yeah. They want to bring everyone together. Uh-huh. They end up just being hated by both. Yeah, yeah. They, so they yeah. they end up kind of doing the thing where they're like, "Hey, look, I can do what both." And all of a sudden, now the liberals and the conservatives are standing side by side, going, "Who is this guy? And where did he come from? <laughs> right. What is he talking about?" Well, because the tricky thing is this, right? So, like within liberalism, like human reason reigns supreme, right? Cultural trends reign supreme. My right? experience, my thought. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
And within fundamentalism, classical fundamentalism, it's the word of God as expressed through scripture. Right. Reigns supreme. Right. Um, and what Bart and other guys do is they try to find this middle ground, but the problem is you can't even it's 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 difficult to nail down what the tenets of neo orthodoxy totally are because there's variety because mm-hmm. there's no real there's there's not I mean even even though Karl Bart wrote this massive work called oh Church Dogmatics massive massive is not a big enough word six million words. 9,000 pages. And died before it was finished. Yeah. Yeah. There would have been he more. He had more to say. But <laughs> the, the trick is, the, the thing about that is, sometimes when it takes you that long to explain it, yeah, it's because you're wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Right? You have to talk in circles to right. try and justify this kind of nuanced position, right? Yeah. So I, I don't want to take it if you've got it, but do you have the classic sort of quote that goes with Bart that no one's really sure if he actually said it. No, go ahead. So the the classic thing that's always pinned to Bart the end theology is there is no God. Yeah, there is no God and Christ is his son. Okay. Right? So that liberal notion of we can't, by human reason, prove the existence of God. Okay. Yet we long for that relationship with him mm. and the salvation that comes from Christ. Right. Right. And so, huh. so this paradoxical statement is sort of the classic summation of Orthodox theology. Mm. There is no God in Christ is his son. <laughs> because what they're going to do is they're going to, they're going to walk a line so that whomever it is that's talking to them is going to say, I get it. Right. And then, uh, when you ask the question, you you said this. What did you mean by that? Yeah, you're going to find that they didn't mean what that word has come to mean. Right. It means to them a different thing that they've invented over here, which sort of denies everything else that they've said, and it it all becomes this real circular thing where they they just they want to be on both sides. Mm-hmm. They really do, mm-hmm. and they're trying not to offend either side. Yeah. And and here's here's where I think here's where I think we have a lot of modern day value mm-hmm. from the neo orthodoxy. Not not in reading and learning from it, mm-hmm. but in watching it as a failed experiment mm-hmm. because it is a failed experiment. Yeah. Like you you would have to dig deep to find someone who's like, Oh yeah, I'm I'm Barthian in my theology, right? Right, or, right. What they proved is that the gap between orthodoxy and liberal theology cannot be bridged. Yeah. Yeah. Right? So so if we wanted to say, we, we talked about the rise of liberal theology, mm-hmm. and particularly in our context in Canada. Right. And, and where we could say, well, aren't the Feb churches and the United churches all kind of doing the same thing? And isn't there a common ground that we can take and all agree on at a very core place. Yeah. Bart said yes. And he was wrong. And he was wrong. <laughs> and and both sides agreed that he was wrong. Yeah, that's the other thing too. Right? Yeah. The it, it's not just like the the fundamentalists are going you didn't go far enough right. in opposing the liberals. Right. right? The liberals are going 
I, I, no one knows what you're saying. Right. Right. <laughs> so let's let's talk a little because we kind of we haven't really talked about what he was saying. Sure. So so in neo orthodox theology, there is, especially in response to because remember neo neo orthodoxy, you kind of talked about it bridging the gap, but primarily. It was a response to liber- the domination of liberal theology, mm-hmm. right? So Bart was going to say, I'm, "I found a different way to have academically, like an academically minded Christianity," right? So, so it's his, you know, his theology is Christocentric, which means it kind of mm-hmm. brings Jesus back to the center of the conversation, which is again something that in general in liberal theology you don't get a lot of, right? And, Apart and, from Jesus being a moral example or something. And and I'll say for that. Mm-hmm. Neo-Orthodox Christianity is more Christian than liberal Christianity. Oh, 100%. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Right. You could, you could subscribe to Neo-Orthodoxy and maybe, like, and still be saved. Like, like and I'm not talking about, like, dabbling in liberal, but, like, the tenet, if, you, if, if your faith is defined by the core tenets of, of liberal theology, that's not the gospel. No, it, it's not Christianity. No. Right? Uh, liberal theology is not Neo-Orthodox could be. Yeah. You you could be Christian despite Neo-Orthodoxy. Yeah. It's kind of like being part of the Roman Catholic Church, the same thing. It's like, yeah. It's right. like, I'm or sure there they're sure there are. Those those in Corinth that Paul writes to about their works uh and them being saved just as those who have escaped the flames. Oh, just barely. <laughs> right. Just barely made it. Yeah. I don't know. It's hard. Maybe that was in anticipation of uh yeah. neo-orthodoxy. So there's a Christocentric focus, a renewed discussion about the Trinity. Um but I guess the 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 areas where it kind of starts going off the rails is Bart and some others were very open to the idea of universalism. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that is because of their view of election. Mm-hmm. So their view of election isn't doesn't line up with the Arminian view or the Calvinist view, right? So it is it's it's something different. Christ is the elected one, and in Him all of mankind is elect, and therefore it's. You know, they they would write. You know, it's entirely possible that all all men will be saved because it's all it, it's, it's Jesus at the center of it, and in Him is the election of all mankind. So, like, there's a very good chance that we're all just good to go. Yeah, and we don't need to worry about. You know, this, it it's it, yeah. It's there was there was a moment there was a moment in my uh, early studies when I I dabbled not in. Not in Karl Barth as a system of theology. Right. I wasn't out shopping for church dogmatics. Right. But possibly as a soteriological option, mm-hmm. because I I sort of famously don't like the full extreme of five point Calvinism or Arminianism. Right. And and I feel like both sides have credible aspects, but there's just something that feels like it's missing right, right, from each side. And so I thought, you know, coming across Bart for the first time, maybe maybe there's something here in this. Right. Uh, come to find out, that notion doesn't have to be universalist. No, it doesn't that, have the to be. The Barthian theology. No, I know. The thing is, 
I think he would he would see it more as a reformed position, whereas today it would be seen as an Arminian position. Right. Yeah. Right. The notion that Christ is the elect, mm-hmm. and and even when the church is called the elect, that means by one degree of separation. Right. Right. Uh, in order to say, um, it's raining, mm. we're all getting wet. Right. Christ holds the umbrella. Right. To protect him, mm-hmm. and all those who abide in him are covered by his umbrella right. of election. Right, right. So that's a good analogy. Abide yeah, in him, to explain it. Yeah, and you're you're saved. Yeah, but apart from him, you're not. Right, and so that's where that's where the Barthian notion isn't necessarily. It, it doesn't necessitate universalism, mm-hmm. uh, but it is. It is a, a position that I would say many Armenians would say that is exactly my understanding of election. Right, right, right. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think there's there's issues because it removes, I think it removes the will of God. I, I, it doesn't remove the will of God. It, it removes anything in regards to the individual, right? Mm-hmm. So there's no like, it's, it's, it's not really, there's no kind of sense of, or there's, it's a, a reduced sense of individual salvation um, and just kind of like we're all under the umbrella. Uh, I wish I had these quotes. I was, we're not all under the umbrella. I don't think they would ever say we're all under the umbrella. Well, or we, well, (laughs) my salvation is that I would step under the umbrella. Right. Or be drawn under the umbrella. Right. There's a, a, a lesser view, a much lesser view of Scripture. So here's the thing. They would not refer to Scripture as the Word of God. Mm-hmm. Scripture contains the Word of God to some degree and becomes the Word of God to some degree as it leads us into an experiential encounter with the Word of God who is Jesus Christ. Now, But the words belong to men. Yeah, the words belong to men, um, so there's no divine. There's not real divine inspiration, mm-hmm. but God has used this broken, this broken text to bring people into an encounter, an experiential encounter with Jesus. Right, right. That's, which is which is an improvement from liberal theology. Yeah, which would just set it aside as a work of men. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. They would say a work of men utilized by God, mm. which raises its bar. Right. Because God would deem it useful. Right. Uh, but not a work of God expressed by men. Right. Which would be the orthodox position. Yeah. Yeah. And so, like, so this idea of like this rejecting the idea that there's any kind of acceptance of truth right so they would say look it's about an experience of faith mm-hmm. rather than holding to certain truths and you know my my thought on that is like why not both yeah. like why do we have to create this dichotomy like it's like well you can't just nod your head to certain you know theological truths you have to have an experience it's like you have to have both yeah like I don't know. I like it's it creates this it creates this false dichotomy between experience and reason. That yeah, I, 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 I wonder. I, I wonder how much of it is a, a product of time and place. 
yeah. um, where liberal theology had so taken a hold mm. that to reject it entirely would would just make you'd become ostracized. Right. Right? Right. And and if you truly had been deeply indoctrinated in the notion that the other option is a, a group of people who don't think. Right. <laughs> and and are beneath everyone in the room academically. Mm-hmm. To just say, well I'm I'm going over there might be more than the human spirit has the capacity for, <laughs> right? Just depending on how, how in, ingrained that is and how much one's inner circles might be, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so, mm-hmm. like, am I arguing that neo-orthodoxy is the product of peer pressure? A tension between peer, peer pressure and the movement of the Holy Spirit? Uh-huh. Possibly so. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've... And I know the, this this movement kind of fizzles out. Um, there's there I think are elements of it. I think what we what is happening now is like you have some people rather than you know Bart and others coming out of the liberal camp to find neo orthodoxy. I think there are some fundamentalists or theological conservatives who are kind of drifting into that a little bit. Um, just you know, with, with a lot of the criticisms around scripture and what scripture teaches on particular subjects, there are, you know, some prominent pastors who are kind of like are distancing themselves from the scripture. They're still saying, Oh, we love, we love the Bible and we think it's, it's, it's true in what it says or in how it brings us to Jesus and whatnot, but they'll kind of dance around the authority and Mm -hmm. fallibility thing, right? Like a big name who's done that, like, Andy Stanley, a little bit, a li- dabbling. Like I wouldn't say he's gone. He's gone full neo orthodox, but like I've heard him say, mm-hmm. our faith is not in the words of scripture. It's right. It's it's about it's about this it's about this experience of Jesus, which is true. But how do who is that Jesus, and what has he done? Yeah, and and so like that is defined by scripture. Yeah. Right? I, I think I would stop short of that just because. Um... I I tend to not want to place people because of common tendency. Right. I I think neo orthodoxy is a decision. Right. That you right follow. I'm, I'm going through with this system. Right. Yeah. Okay. Um. So I would grant that. I, I mean, a common a common failure of thought or a common misleading um, might not be enough. But yeah. After the neo-orthodox movement, mm-hmm. we have what comes to be some pretty serious revival movements. Oh yeah, no, like massive. Um, I mean, we could talk about any number of revivalists. I think the one that we have to talk about is Billy Graham. Yeah, um, William Franklin Graham Jr., born in 1918 in Charlotte, North Carolina. Um, family were dairy farmers. He was raised in the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church, um, but was converted at the age of 16 through a series of revival services led by a Baptist evangelist named Mordecai Ham. Mm-hmm. Um, I love Mordecai Ham's story. I don't know it. What is it? Just, just that. Oh, okay. Right? Mm-hmm. Like, I, I don't need to be the guy. 
Right. I don't I don't need to be the guy published right. on the massive stage, right. right? Like I'm not good enough at answering emails <laughs> for that to be my role. Right. I'm yeah. not a big networker. Sure, yeah, yeah. Uh but at the same time to be a guy mm. who's a footnote in the story of the guy. Right. That God really used. Yeah, that's cool. I'd take that all day yeah, long. That's so cool. so no pressure on you, but <laughs> Oh man, you've mentioned that before, and Alex brought it up in a group setting the other day, and I'm like, "Well, it's not going to be me." I'm like, "Maybe Sam." <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, "I'm too prickly. I couldn't get thousands of people to like me." Okay, um, so so Billy Graham ends up going to initially to Bob Jones College, mm-hmm. uh, where he nearly gets expelled. Uh, this is like this is the time of like hardcore fundamentalism, so like extremely strict rules um and he's just like (laughs) billy graham the rebel i guess um anyway so he he's nearly expelled so he transfers to the florida bible institute and while he's still studying he starts preaching and in 1939 at only 20 years of age he's ordained by the local association of southern baptists and following year gets his bachelor of theology continues studying at wheaton college um, he kind of hits the public stage in 1944 where he takes over a failing Christian radio program called Songs in the Night. And, you know, through his ministry there, he, he starts gathering together an evangelistic team. Um, and this team establishes something in a hotel room in Modesto that became known as the Modesto Manifesto. Which is just that just rolls off the tongue. Gotta love it. Modesto Manifesto. Essentially, it was a code for this team of evangelists to mm-hmm. protect themselves from allegations, like from sexual or financial allegations or abuses of power, that sort of thing. Um, it's this code is where we get the famous Billy Graham rule. So, if you don't know what the Billy Graham rule is, it's essentially he would never be alone in the room with a woman who was not his wife. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't be one on one. That rule has been lauded by many. It's been criticized by um, by others. The practicality of it, I mean, I don't know. But for someone who is in the public eye to the degree that he was, it I think worked for him. It worked for him. Yeah, and you know, and I'm not, you know, like there is not, there aren't people trying to take me down as the associate pastor of a little church in a little town somewhere in Canada. But you've not been in ministry long enough. <laughs> but what there's I, always somebody there's always Marshall. Somebody. No, but I mean like not that I expect this to ever happen, but you know, if I was in a position where, you know, you become kind of a household name the face of Christianity or whatever, um I think you do got to yeah, extra. it's a different. It's, it's a, a different thing. It's a different thing. Yeah, um, at 29, he became the youngest college president in the U.S. when he took over Northwestern Bible and or Bible College in Minneapolis. Um, then he gets hired as a full-time evangelist on top of being the president of that uh, of the mm-hmm. Bible College uh, by a new organization known as Youth for Christ. Yeah. Which is founded by Tory Johnson and a Canadian guy by the name of Charles Templeton. Yeah, and this is gonna be this is gonna be where we start really seeing 
what will become in the 60s and 70s all the more this rise of uh parachurch parachurch meaning paras alongside mm -hmm. uh, these organizations that come alongside the church sort of as their own evangelistic and discipleship movement mm -hmm. never calling themselves the church but um their their proponents would say doing the work of the church uh those critical of them would say but not going far enough to be a church mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. and so they they always live in this tension mm -hmm. of of where these groups are uh but these groups these groups really take off oh yeah and and have a massive impact on the the christian landscape oh for sure for like the next couple of decades. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Right. You have like InterVarsity Ministry, mm -hmm. uh, Campus for Christ, like all sorts of things, right? Um, and and many of them still running. Yeah. Oh, All yeah. under different names now. Right. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. But. Um. So, his first big time revival took place in Los Angeles, where they erected circus tents in these big parking lots. It was planned to be a three week long thing. Ended up lasting for eight. Mm -hmm. And the success of the event brought Billy Graham, now in his like early 30s, to a national level of recognition. People had heard about what he was doing, and and this was a, a massive movement. And like he would go on to lead over 400 crusades in 185 different countries or territories on all six major continents. Including the Soviet Union. Which is crazy. Unbelievable. <laughs> right? So, like, and, and 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 keep in mind, like, the longevity of this thing, right? So he's, like, starting this in, like, whatever, the late 40s or early 50s or whatever. Mm -hmm. And, like, just does it through the 50s, through the 60s, through the 70s, 80s, 90s, like, into the 2000s. Like, he's still going. Right. right. Um his it, documentary, have you seen the the documentary? I, I not, no. It's incredible. Okay. It's it's so good. So yeah. and and as he's as he is doing his ministry, like he's like he's also got to respond because he's such a prominent public figure, he's got to respond to different issues that are going on around him. So one of which is kind of racial tension. So initially mm -hmm. a lot of his rallies would have been seg segregated. Um but he starts changing his stance on this in 1953 so that's pretty early um at least in in this movement um especially for a white guy to be advocating this in the south in tennessee he personally tore down the ropes that were set up to divide whites and blacks and he told the organizers that if they tried to put them back up they could just go and have the crusade without him so he kind of called people's bluffs yeah. right because at this point like right like he's kind of a big like he's kind of a big deal and so state law says it has to be Separated? Well, I'm not down with that. What are you gonna do about it? Right, right. And, and, <laughs> and here's where here's where here's where you gotta love Billy Graham, right? Like, there are detractors for everything. Of course, as you said earlier, when you're in the public eye, yeah, people are trying to take you down. Yeah, right. Billy Graham is not the Apostle Paul. Nope, he's not Jesus. Mm -hmm. So, did he get some things wrong? Yes, he did. Sure. Right? Um, were his evangelism crusades the most perfect way of discipling people for a lifetime? 
No. No. But but for those who would be like, the whole thing needs to be thrown out over that, I would refer back to Moody. Mm -hmm. I like the way that I do evangelism better than the way that you don't. Yeah, exactly. Uh so he he's doing some some really fantastic things. Mm-hmm. Sometimes there's some quirks of theology that have cropped up, sure. That that kind of come in and out, those kinds of things. But but let's take it for what he was able to do. Mm-hmm. He becomes such a rock and roll is only barely a thing at this point, right? But he's a rock star. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Right? And he's Southern, mm-hmm. which means he's one of us to the whole Bible Belt. Yep. Right? Yep. And he stands in and tears these ropes down. And for the government to come at him, it's like coming after Jesus himself to these people. Right, yeah. Right? Touch like, not you, the Lord's anointed. <laughs> you are not coming after Billy Graham right. and getting reelected. <laughs> Right, yeah. and so some are going to say you're not coming after segregism, segregation, mm-hmm. and getting reelected, mm-hmm. and these guys have to choose, right? <laughs> and they choose. Yeah, I can't mess with Billy Graham. <laughs> yeah, so he he ends up developing a close relationship with Martin Luther King Jr. Mm-hmm. and uh, two of them actually on some occasions spoke together, traveled together. Billy Graham was known for having you know, black preachers on his executive board, right, of his organization as it continued to grow. Um, they didn't always see eye to eye. Yeah. They, uh, Billy Graham and Martin Luther King were divided on issues like the Vietnam War, right? So um, Billy was in favor of it. Martin Luther King was not, right? But despite, and they had other differences and different things, but they remained close. Billy Graham actually even posted bail for Martin Luther King on more than one occasion, bailed him out of jail, which is just, I just love that. Mm-hmm. It was just like, and he, this would be even like when they weren't, weren't traveling together and like, you know, Martin Luther King would be part of some demonstration. They'd throw him in jail and, you know, Billy Graham would find out and just like make the call. Because it's a statement. Yeah. It's, it, it's, it's not a, only, it's not only a statement to Martin Luther King mm-hmm. and, and the movement. Yeah. It's a statement to those people who, who arrested him. Oh Yeah. Right, yeah, yeah. And, and I'm talking a lot about the civil rights stuff. People know about obviously his e- evangelistic work, and we'll we'll t- talk about that too. But um, one other little thing: so he, he did a rally in South Africa in 1973. Hundred thousand people showed up. Um, it was the first mixed race event of this type in apartheid South Africa. Right. So like, so here's the thing about apartheid: like it it made Southern segregation look like fun um and billy graham stated from the podium apartheid is sin like in south africa and like what are they going to do about it what's the government going to do about it they're going to arrest them billy graham there's a hundred thousand people showing up to see him right he could just say it the the position that god put him in yeah and the way that he utilized that his Mm -hmm. faithfulness to utilize that and Mm -hmm. to say what needs to be said Mm mm-hmm is just fantastic. Yeah, and one of the things I really love, as I was kind of reading through his life story, and there's like, there's so much that, I mean, you, if you really want to dig in deep, right, you said there's a documentary, but like, he he finds himself in this prominent position. He speaks to these contemporary issues, but he doesn't get boxed in on either the left or the right, mm-hmm. right? He kind of like, you know, he is he's close with 
Democrat and Republican presidents, mm-hmm. right? He's kind of he kind of straddles the line, and and it's not even that he straddles the line; it's right. more he transcends the line, right? And, like, and that's that's where that's where I would say to any pastor, and and I, I think a lot of pastors would want to be cynical about Billy Graham. It's just one of those things. Right. It's one of those things where when a person becomes a certain level of popular, mm-hmm. it's not cool for you to be like. They're my favorite, and this is what I learned from them, right. Right? right? right. So, so pastors have this thing that they do that is kind of like the what teenagers do with their music, right? Right? Like the person's played on the radio, and they're like, "Well, everybody knows about them, and so they're terrible, yeah." And it's not cool, but I know about this band that nobody else has ever heard of, and no record label wants to sign because they're not that great. But they're my favorite band, <laughs> and it's grassroots, and we're in it together, right, kind of a thing, right? Right, right, right. Uh, but one thing that that I think everyone can take from Billy Graham is he doesn't go into a situation and make his decision based on the decisions other people have made and what the consequences are for that. Right. He goes in and he says, "This is what I think." is the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. And when people come at it from either side, he's gracious with them, mm-hmm. uh, but he's not swayed. Yeah. And and his documentary, like the whole purpose of documentaries in the modern day mm-hmm. is to be like, I bet you didn't know this about him. Yeah. This and to, dark to, drop, to drop none of it, right? <laughs> There's just nothing to be had. There's nothing you can sink your teeth into, really. Uh, he's meeting with these presidents. Mm-hmm. Some people complain that he's being used by these presidents, right? We have this major situation going on, or I'm newly elected. Right. What's the first thing that the president's going to do? Right. He's going to call Billy Graham for prayer, and he's going to fly in Billy Graham on Air Force One, <laughs> and they're going to sit in the Oval Office and pray together. <laughs> and critics are going to say, and they, they all the time, What's happening here mm. is this president is using Billy Graham to manipulate the religious right. Right. Right? Billy Graham came in. We prayed about this. Then I met with my cabinet. This is the decision we made. Right. But... Billy Graham knew that. Yeah. Well, And, and even, even comments to the degree, like, if I don't go and pray with him, who's going to? Well, and, and it wasn't... Like he wasn't just meeting with Republican presidents. In fact, right. he was closer with with Democrats. Yeah, actually. and, <laughs> like and again, critics, like, <laughs> haters gonna hate, right? Yeah, yeah. People but, are gonna look for for. But reasons. his his point is just to say, like, he called me in to pray with him. I'm gonna do that. Yeah, of course. Why would right? You? If I'm yeah. not gonna pray with him, who's gonna pray with him? Yeah, and and just because I prayed with him doesn't mean that his decision is something that I agree with. Yeah, like come on, like like for all for all his for all his. Oh, I gotta be careful what I say here. I won't. I won't even. I won't even say it. I'll just say that if if Justin Trudeau was like for whatever reason called Memorial Baptist Church and was like, "Hey, I want you to come to Ottawa and pray with mm-hmm. me or give me some spiritual advice," like what? Like we'd be stupid to turn down on that opportunity. Yep. Of course, you're going to take that opportunity, right? Yeah, and that doesn't mean he's not asking. I want you to make the decision for me. No, he's just saying, "Tell me what you think." Yeah. 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 And I probably would. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, so here's the thing. Here's the thing with with understanding the scope of Billy Graham's ministry. Okay, he preached the gospel to more people than anyone else in history, and it's not even close. No, if you include radio and television, which you know is including a lot, 
they figured 2 billion people heard him preach the gospel. That's incredible. And at his, you know, in-person um, rallies, um, the kind of the gospel invitation and and the, the song at the end, Just As I Am or Come As You Are or whatever it is, uh, th- about 3.2 million responded to the gospel invitation. Now, Billy Graham himself would would concede the fact that a lot of those probably weren't genuine, you know, that some of those people like maybe caught in the emotion ca- of the caught moment. In the moment or whatever. But it, even if the even if just a tiny fraction right. of those were genuine, like what an impact. Right. Right. What an impact to yeah, have. You almost want to take you almost want to take the, the keyboard warrior mm-hmm. who's sitting back and being like less than point one percent of those people ever became genuine <laughs> disciples of Christ. Right. You want to be like, all right, let's crunch the numbers on that. <laughs> yeah. I'll take it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Tens of thousands. Only tens of thousands were right. genuine. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Oh, and Billy Graham, I mean, he lived up into the modern era. He died in twenty eighteen at ninety nine mm-hmm. years old. Um I mean, yeah, just a, a massive, massive impact. You know, changed the way people understood evangelism. Kind of demonstrated a good way of how to for a how a prominent evangelical can conduct themselves. Mm-hmm. You know, um, again, we we mentioned like the way that it's done. Maybe like you know, people could say, oh, maybe that's not the best way, right? Long term, right? Because it's kind of the decision a bit of a just kind of a the decisionism thing and not a lot of discipleship mm-hmm. i mean they did have some people there to kind of talk people yeah through things, I, I, w- but I would say though clearly they were evangelism crusades that's the that was their purpose yeah. right right decisionism is when the church itself mm. says we're gonna host this revival service people come forward and they're like you're good <laughs> right. right and the right. church is yeah. like you're local you're here Mm. Sunday in, Sunday out, or spotty, whatever. We're not investing in you for discipleship. We're just looking for the next person to sign a card and to right. pray a prayer. Right, right, right. right. Uh, so that would that would be my take on it, right? Like, yep. he, he never intended it to be, uh, I'm planting churches in these areas. Right. Well, because there already were churches. Right. He wanted to introduce them to the gospel, mm-hmm. and the church takes over from there. Yeah. Or the responsibility of the person who says they've committed— Right. To find a church to right. lead them from there. Right. 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 And and I, I think there's even I mean, Paul does this. Sure. Yeah, it's not like you know, like that day like three thousand were saved and then he immediately like runs them all through a catechism class. Like it's just yeah. <laughs> you can't do that. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> we also have a lot of really great theologians come along mm. in this era that um are gonna gonna help us find that ground where we're we're not so swung one way or the other, but mm-hmm. we're going to have some great classical fundamentalist orthodox teaching mm-hmm. at some really fantastic academic levels. Mm. Some people, F. F. Bruce, okay, yeah, writes in this period. Um, if you don't know who Bruce is, go to your pastor's study. Yeah, you'll find a book. And you'll find you'll find a whole book or, or commentary or... or an entire series of commentaries <laughs> that are where he's the principal editor. Yeah. FF Bruce uh is just an incredible mark 
upon the church mm. in what is a very orthodox position. Mm-hmm. I, I would I would get nitpicky and say, well, maybe Bruce and I don't agree on a couple of things. Sure. My my wife at one point came to me and said, Tim, is there anyone that you just agree with that you're just like, if you read that person, you you understand what I think <laughs> on all things, right? To which I just responded, that's no fun. Right? <laughs> uh, but that's that's the freedom that we have in Christ mm-hmm, mm-hmm. to examine the Scripture. Um, in our limited and broken ways. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. Yeah, I love Martin Lloyd-Jones. Is uh, a huge presence in this moment. Logic on fire. That's how he was described. Yeah. It was it was deep preaching, teaching, writing on an intellectual level, but invigorated with life. Yeah, kind of the pastor's pastor kind of a thing yeah. now yeah. to this point, right? Yeah. Like um, a lot of pastors know and love Martin Lloyd Jones, mm-hmm. um, and and he makes a great impact. We start seeing many of the commentary series that we still use today mm-hmm. are birthed in this time. There's just a a huge groundswell mm-hmm. of of this coming out of the Second World War that mm-hmm. is so valuable mm-hmm. and lays such a great foundation for where the church is today. Mm-hmm. Right. I, I just want to throw that in because I feel like a lot of what we've done is talked about how shaky the ground got there for a for mm-hmm. a hot minute. Yeah. Yeah. Which is absolutely the case. Right. Right. Uh but out of that, mm-hmm. some people who took the mantle and mm-hmm. stepped forward and said, No, we're going to do this so that people understand mm-hmm. clearly what the Bible says, and the Bible is that authority over us. Yeah. And this is how we live it and teach it in a way that honors God. Yeah, yeah. And what you see kind of in in North America, um, I'm not sure if the same is true in Europe or abroad, but um, certainly in this part of the world, post-World War II, you do see a bit of a slow decline in the mainline churches, mm-hmm. and that's kind of continuing. Um, but you actually see a renewed um, and invigorated evangelical church. Yeah, not quite a third great, great awakening. Yeah, not quite, but... Cause I, I, because I wouldn't say that it, it splashed no. like that. No. It's, more of a, it's more of a groundswell. Yep. And, yep. and this builds um, a lot of the... So a lot of us, we look back and we're like, I remember when the world was just more Christian. Yeah. Right? Well, that's because... Most of us aren't older than this, right? Yeah, yeah. And do you remember the '60s and '70s? Of course, you. That was the that was the pinnacle. <laughs> yeah, and so and so, f- for all this going on socially, we also have like the Jesus movement. Yeah, comes in at the time. Yeah, huge revivals and like we're mm-hmm. probably getting ahead of ourselves, but in mm-hmm. the '70s, even into Quebec. Yeah, right. Like yeah. Yeah. Quebec, which is if you're. You know, I almost said if you're not Canadian, you probably don't understand this. I don't think a lot of Canadians understand this. Mm. Uh, Quebec, as a reached people group, I'm pointing yeah, so that everyone knows what direction Quebec is. Right, right. you're pointing northeast. Uh, uh, most, most unreached nations, mm. Muslim nations, mm-hmm. Saudi Arabia, mm-hmm. um, United Arab Emirates, mm-hmm. 
these kinds of countries are pretty well on par with Quebec. Yeah. Yeah. As far as the Christianization of the people. Yeah. Um, and so that there was a revival in Quebec mm-hmm. uh, for evangelical Christian mm-hmm. uh, groups was huge. Mm-hmm. Working on building from that even today, uh, a lot of really great churches that are doing some awesome things. Yep. Um, but still a big uphill climb. But yeah. but yeah, that those foundations, those revivals, mm-hmm. these splashes, this mm-hmm. this is a, a big time for the church. Mm-hmm. And uh, and and kind of a leveling of the ground, I think, between some of the divisions of that really hardcore fundamentalist versus mm. liberal theology right. movement. Right, right. Yeah, and I think like I think you you get you get a church that is you know at least relatively healthy um and growing, at least the evangelical church growing, but also kind of just wrestling with being sidelined mm-hmm. from kind of the 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 power table, you know, like the, the, the church is not, and because keep in mind that most of the churches that are growing are not the mega denominations, Mm -hmm. right? They're the quasi independent or relatively small groups, um, new denominations, non-denominational groups, right? So these are not big players. And so they've, the church has to kind of figure out, okay, we are not the, the power, the political powerhouse we used to be, what role do we play in society now, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, I I think that's going to come more in... Well, it's, 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 it's even more so now. Right, like, so in the in the Canadian, right, spectrum, mm-hmm. that might be true. I would say in the U.S., that probably doesn't even happen until, like, the 90s. Oh, wow, okay. Because I would say, I would say through this period, the Southern Baptist Church mm-hmm. is exploding, Right, and mm-hmm. Southern Baptist churches are getting planted all over the place. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to start seeing in the church growth movement in the seventies, yeah, uh, which is next week's yep. topic. We're going to see a rise of the non-denominational church, mm-hmm. where people are going to say, based on baggage from, mm-hmm. you know, I a, a rejection of liberal theology because it proved to be lifeless. Mm-hmm. Uh, but fundamentalists, fundamentalism goes from being um, stubborn and mm. giving up what are the truths of Scripture to being angry. Mm. Is that fair? Goes from stubborn to angry in certain circles, for sure. And yeah. and uh, and and that's where we start seeing the dirty side. Of mm-hmm. fundamentalism, mm-hmm. what we come to think of now as the fundamentalist, right, right. Um, and so, with that, there are a lot of people hurt mm-hmm. by the angry side mm-hmm. of fundamentalism, rather than a righteous stubbornness, right, to give up truth and to cling to mm-hmm. that truth, regardless of how society moves. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, that makes space for a, a non-denominational movement. Um, but mm-hmm. yeah, all in all, I. All in all, I'd characterize it in this. It's not like the church is in a in a safe place mm. where it's 
out at pasture right. and things aren't going wrong <laughs> and things aren't being discussed. <laughs> it never really is there. <laughs> no, no. And, and I hope, I mean, it will be when, when Christ returns. Yes. Until well, yeah. then, you know, we always want to be reforming and growing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but I would say in the span between, in, in this span that we're talking about, it's more about an itemized itemized theological discussions okay. rather than wholesale kind of things, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Where it's fundamentalism and liberalism, we're talking baby and bathwater right. kind of things, right? Uh, this era is going to get more into particulars, right? Right. Complementarianism versus egalitarianism. Right. Those words don't exist in church discussions until the 80s. Right. Right? And you have two young academics, professors uh, from Wheaton College, that help bring some of these discussions to light, Mm. Wayne Grudem and John Piper. Mm. Um, And so those kinds of things are... Are the hotter topics? Mm-hmm. There, there is a push in the '60s uh, for the Southern Baptist Church to take a liberal view of Scripture, mm-hmm. scriptural authority. Right. Uh, that is shot down. The man who led that charge for the uh, conserve the the classical view of the authority of Scripture um, eventually himself just goes off the rails. Right. Loses his job at uh, Southern at the New Orleans Seminary and uh, and ends up getting hired at McMaster. Oh, really? Yeah, because they were like, "Hey, we'd love to have you." (laughs) Um, But yeah, yeah, just splashes, individual Mm -hmm. things, Mm -hmm. nothing really wholesale. A great time of church growth. Yeah, for sure. And church stability. Yeah, church stability. Through the Cold War. Yeah, yeah. I I would say, you mentioned last week. That one of the one of the potential rises was going to be nationalism, mm-hmm. right? That was one of the the predictions. Yeah, that proved to be true. Yeah, I think I think in this moment we see that nationalistic rise, mm-hmm. where uh, God and country become linked things. Yeah, because well, because the Christians everywhere could unite around a common enemy which was atheistic communism right mm-hmm. communism is inherently atheistic um and and you know when the soviet union's putting missile bases on cuba like it's easy to to see them as an enemy right and to see you know america as the defender of christianity right mm-hmm. um so like and not entirely wrong like I mean, I think mis- I think some of that passion, like the nationalism, especially how it worked its way into the church, is misplaced. I think, um, but but like understandable in the context mm-hmm. of the time, right? Like the the stakes were high, and so right, like not in favor of flags on the on the podium at church, but I understand why people thought that was okay because the church was, you know arm-in-arm with the state in fighting against this godless, atheistic communism that threatened to destroy the whole world. At least that's what they were told, right? So, Right. Yeah, yeah. But that seems that seems to be something very much on the rise. Yeah. Um, I, remember, I remember hearing a sermon one time 
and and in it, the the pastor was wanting to to make a point about uh, the power of money. Okay. And the final thing, one of the, one of the things mentioned was would people for you know however many millions of dollars would people walk away from their religion mm. and a number of people said yes mm. um but one that was just sort of stopped at and paused at was their country like could you imagine that people would do this right and just like sort of paralleled those two things wow. right as as a common sacrifice <laughs> um so that's where that's where god and country can go too far yeah and and i mean yeah I, i'd walk away from canada for not that much cash i'm gonna be honest with you <laughs> it depends on what month it is yeah 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 if it's like if it's like mid-february like i'm gone like give, like cut me a check for 100 in, fact, in fact many canadians do <laughs> yeah they do <laughs> they come back yeah they do they but do. they pay a price <laughs> they're not even getting paid they're paying the price i know to leave uh but yeah, yeah, this this paralleling of our our faith, yeah, our our. our so it, it, let's do it this way. Let's do it this way. Augustine's two cities, right? They they raise the two as if they're one and the same, right? Uh, yeah. This unification mm-hmm. of God and country, right? My citizenship in Christ, my citizenship in U.S. I, I'm going to say I've seen some in, some of this in Canada too. Sure. Not not too not as as broadly or as strong. Right. But I think if we recognize that evangelical Christianity is not as broad or as strong. Right. That it makes sense. So if we do sort of a per capita measure, mm. there there is a measure of comparable sure. uh, equivalence here. Mm-hmm. Um, these things come together as if they're linked. Right. Right. Um, and it, that's not the case. Mm-hmm. Right, it is going to prove now to be a problem, mm-hmm. right? Where you have this whole like, I defend my country because of my religion. I defend my religion because of my country, right? And, and that means I fall into a particular political leaning, mm-hmm. and I can't separate one from the other, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, so. I mean, it's easier here, I think, because our some of our top politicians have kind of claim that holding particular views that are inherently Christian, I would say, are un-Canadian. So now, like, I think evangelical Christians are understanding that, like, the Christian identity and the Canadian identity, the Christian values and Canadian values do not align. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and I, I, think, I think that Canada in that is probably a generation ahead of the U.S. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so I, I think... We will see those things happen unless, unless the religious core, mm. um, and I'm going to use the word religious core and not Christian core, because I, I firmly understand that mm. um, this Bible Belt conservative right in the U.S. is not particularly gospel-driven. Right. Right, but Christianity has become one of the values that they see as the tradition of their lifestyle. Yeah, yeah they want to defend the the rights of the church, even though they don't show up to church. Sure, <laughs> uh, those if that group is strong enough, mm. 
it might not follow in line with Canada mm. in that sort of a thing. There might be enough tension mm-hmm. there mm-hmm. to keep it. I don't know. It'd be yeah. interesting to see. We'll see. Yeah. That's maybe for another podcast episode. Maybe years down the road. <laughs> Thanks for listening. This podcast is a resource of Memorial Baptist Church in Stratford, Ontario, in cooperation with the Gospel Coalition of Canada and is produced by Alex Walker. See you later.